This week on Painting Lines. I'm pretty confident in Runa. I think there's too much low-hanging fruit for improvement. I believe in his desire, his work ethic. I watch him play, and I think, wow, he could be so much better. Grigor Dimitrov was an absolute machine. You can count the bad losses that he's had on his season on one hand. Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week, we gave our season awards for 2023, and this week, we're excited to welcome Gil Gross, a fellow tennis content creator and commentator. Gil, welcome to the show. Hey, Aiden. Thank you uh, so much for having me on. Excited. We're glad to have you. So uh, I wanted to kind of start the pot off by kind of delving into your background in tennis and in broadcasting, and then sort of move into some topics about this year and going into 2024, what your thoughts are on the year to come. So first up, I think probably you've heard had this question a lot in uh, any time you've been asked about your background, but you were a ball boy at the U.S. Open. I kind of wanted to ask, what was that like? And uh, was there like a favorite match that you were a part of when you were at the U.S. Open? Yeah, it, it was a dream. Uh, just trying out when I was, I think I was at the age minimum. I was about uh, 13 years old when I first tried out. I was smaller than everybody else. There was a line of 400 people trying to, trying to make it and become a, a ball person. And uh, I think the math was like 80. They, they take like 80 new ones every year and like 400 people try out. So I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to get to do this. But I did make it, and I, I kind of consider those three weeks in, in 2013, which was the first year I did it, I kind of consider that like the best three weeks of my life where I was just living in complete fantasy land, going to the U.S. Open every day, you know, getting paid instead of paying. Yeah. Um, and uh, being on court with, with these players where, like, even, even in qualifying week, you're just blown away by the athleticism and – the level of tennis that they're that they're bringing and you know at, at that age there was there was nothing cooler than that favorite match well as a rookie i got on grandstand it was the old grandstand before they changed it so the one attached to louis armstrong stadium mm. at the time um and i did tommy haas oh wow! so that was the biggest that was the biggest court i did and uh, one of the things i really remember from that match was tommy was cursing in German and English within the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> so he would just change languages like mid sentence and it sounded hilarious. And the last thing you wanted to do was like crack a smile, right? Like you didn't want to look like you were laughing at, at Tommy Haas. <laughs> Should you think uh, this is funny? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Ball boys are able to keep like such composure too. You have to keep a straight face, right? Yeah. And, and one of the things that people don't think about, like you don't really talk for two hours 15 minutes like you don't say a word while you're doing it so it's just you and and your thoughts really because you know there's really no place for talking on court i'll also add i did the brian bros oh that's uh, awesome yeah and that was uh, that was on court seven which is way too small a court for the brian bros there's a <laughs> massive 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 line uh outside the court trying to trying to watch them because it just wasn't big enough but i always like to say that the brian bros were the nicest players that I ever was on court with 
they were the only ones that actually said thank you every time. Mm. Every time I gave them the, a ball, mm. they'd say thank you, which is not expected. Like, I don't expect any players to thank me, right, at all. But the fact that they did it, and they're the Brian bros, and not not a single one of the juniors or the qualifiers, like none of even the smaller players, none of them thanked me, only the Brian bros. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, humility at the highest level. What about towels? Were you in charge of the towels too or no, when they did that? Yeah, at, at times, especially my sophomore year because most players bring the towel to the side opposite the chair umpire. No, I'm sorry, same side of the chair umpire. The veterans of the crew usually work that side of the court. The rookies work usually the other side of the court. So when they throw the ball across the court, or at least when they used to, because you don't throw the ball at the U.S. Open anymore. Uh, when you throw the ball across the court, you don't have to deal with the chair, uh, trying to avoid hitting the chair, which is something that I was guilty of one time, um, <laughs> my second year. But yeah, I did I did the towel a little bit. Um, I, I didn't think it was gross. I, I never minded it. If anything, it's gross for them, right? Like the dirtiest part of our human bodies are our hands. And we are handing them towels to put on their face. So who is it gross for, us or the players? Yeah. Hey, good point. There you go. Can you kind of talk about the tryout to becoming a ball kid or ball person? Because there was a great Vice documentary on the process, and it seemed super cutthroat. They put you through drills all day. They're kind of like yelling at you, too. They put you in high-pressure situations. People trip, fall, get up. Like, Just speak a, a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember any yelling, but it's definitely an intimidating scene. You know, you have a lot of people at once and uh you know there's really no way to stand out other than don't mess up right i think that's the key when you're trying out people would be surprised like how few people 10 times in a row without fail can run full speed and pick a ball up off the court and you know continue to run full speed and do it 10 times without butchering it like a lot of people just don't have that dexterity or that coordination to do that where it seems like a simple thing but the key is that you can do it every time now back when when i was trying out another thing was the throw the throw was pretty hard because if you've ever thrown a tennis ball they're just not designed to be thrown they're they're too lightweight so you know you have to be able to throw that accurately and on one bounce to the other side of the court um and and that's something that i'm sure a lot of people got tripped up with yeah I was a ball kid at a, a challenger in my hometown in Napa and they only did the roll across the court. Like you rolled it to the person in the middle and then you rolled it uh, down to the person at the end. But I mean, speaking on what you were saying with the uh, running full speed, another aspect of that is you have to be aware of the players at all times. Because I remember I was doing the net and I was kind of in the mode. I was just, every time I would just run, pick up the ball. And this one time the player hit it in the net and then they walked towards the ball because they were going to hit it. And I, as I'm getting to the ball, I pick it up and I'm still going full speed and I had to like dodge around the player. And it was Sam Groth who was like a big deal at the tournament because he's like the fastest server of all time. And yeah. so I was like, I almost just took that dude out. That would not have been a good look. But yeah, it's definitely important to, to maintain the, the focus and it's not an easy thing to be doing. True, true. And, and the, the score too. Like if you're kind of asleep at the wheel and let's say a game ends and it's time for a changeover and you're just like frozen there for like four seconds while everyone else is going through the changeover procedures, uh, that's a bad look. Like you yeah. gotta be on it. <laughs>
Exactly. Exactly. Were there any uh, cool things you saw that like behind the scenes in those three weeks? Honestly, they do a pretty good job keeping like the players areas and the, the ball person's areas mm -hmm. separate. Uh, it might be cooler now because the ball person lounge has been updated since I mm -hmm. did it. And it's actually under Armstrong where I think the players have a little bit more like facilities, like dining areas, like uh, a little bit more. So maybe there's more interaction now. It's always interesting to see the players, though, before they, they go out onto a match or, or just walking around on the grounds. Um, now that you ask, what, what stands out to me is it used to be that the Saturday before the tournament started, that would be the day where we would go pick up our uniforms. And uh, this has changed now. Fans were not allowed on the grounds at this point. So it was just players and coaches. And I remember kind of walking around and just seeing a lot of players with their coaches, just it's their only chance to really like enjoy the grounds without having fans everywhere. Right. Which yeah. they'll, they'll never, they'll never do it once the tournament starts, but they're just kind of lounging around. And uh, one of the things I just remembered was how many different languages I was hearing. And, and you start to realize like the tennis tour is like so diverse. You're hearing French and you're hearing Italian and you're hearing Spanish all in a span of like, two minutes walking from one part to the other. Uh, so that part I remember pretty well. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people don't, I think, think about, cause all these guys speak English on TV, but they're all speaking to their coaches and uh, their uh, team in their native language. Right. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. So then you, uh, as you got a little bit older, you started your YouTube channel and podcast. I know you worked on a radio station for a little bit as well. But for us, it's felt a little bit odd, at least, yeah, for me. It often feels kind of like I'm speaking into the void. And then I get a comment and I realize people are actually seeing like what I put out. I remember the other day I made an Instagram video and it was about Medvedevic playing in the next gen finals. And then his coach or his former coach made a comment on it. And I was like, this is crazy. I didn't expect someone like that to see it. So is there any ever been a time where you you put something out and you were like, Oh, I can't believe people are actually seeing this. Or you, you, you realize like people are reacting to what you're saying. Yeah. I just remember the first couple times videos got like, I don't know, some SEO help. I'll call it, which for those uninitiated search engine optimization, basically the YouTube algorithm, just giving you a little bit of help and recommending your video. And uh, you know, you're going to need that to happen at some point if you want anybody to find your stuff. And I, I remember, you know, first year of the YouTube channel, I was, I was covering all sports. Um, I was doing videos on UFC. I was talking about the Knicks and the Rangers who were my, my New York teams that I, that I liked. And the tennis videos were the first to really get some traction. And I, I think the first one that ever got some traction was, uh, was Federer and Nadal after their Australian open final in 2017. Great match. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> a, a, amazing match. I'm sure, you know, it did a lot of, it did a crazy amount of traffic everywhere. There wasn't a lot of tennis commentary on YouTube at the time. So I, I guess it, it filled a little bit of a, a void. And then I, I just kind of noticed as I continued to periodically do some tennis videos, as it was in the rotation of sports that I was interested in, that those videos tended to get more SEO help and not only that, I am more, you know, just a little bit more insightful about the technicalities of tennis than I, than I am compared to other sports. Although, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of smart people about 
basketball. Um, I was a, a manager on my high school varsity team in basketball in part so I could be in practice and I could learn more about the game so I could have more knowledge and you know, football, I think everybody tries their best, but it's so darn complicated. Uh, but but tennis, <laughs> tennis was my main sport that I played. And, you know, I think I had really smart coaches and I um, even did some coaching myself. So I, it kind of was a, a combination of two things. You know, on, on one hand, it was completely lucky that YouTube algorithm was kind of giving me more help in tennis than the other sports. The other part of it was that what I was saying was probably some more more valuable commentary than I could give on the other sports just because I had a, I could get a little bit more technical with tennis. Yeah. Did you notice any sort of crossover with basketball? Cause I know a lot of people say basketball and tennis have a lot of similar like movements and characteristics. Was there anything? Cause obviously you, you have uh, experience then like being a manager on a team like that. Did you notice anything specific between those two sports? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I can't, nothing comes to my head immediately. The, the thing about also the tennis viewership is it's so international. Now, basketball mm -hmm. is really gaining popularity worldwide, but uh, it, it's funny when I'm doing the show now and I try to cross-reference other sports and it's like some land, some don't. I do find that basketball is one that, that does land uh, certainly more often than baseball. Like if I make a yeah. baseball analogy, I, I feel like a lot of people are pretty lost. Yeah. And, uh, and basketball tends to work especially uh, now that, you know, it, it's funny in, in Serbia, the top two athletes are Jokic and Djokovic. So I think there's a lot of people in, in Serbia who are certainly locked into tennis and basketball as their main two sports, even though throughout most of that, that region, as is the case in 95% of the world, uh, you know, soccer is kind of king. Yeah. You get that, uh, that growing uh, viewership in the NBA when you see people like Doncic and Jokic just kind of dominating the league. I, I kind of have a question on like the viewership. We talked about how international tennis is. Do you find that most of your engagement comes from people outside the U.S.? Yeah, more, more than 50%. I mean, mm. the U.S. is my, my largest viewership country by quite a bit. Like nothing mm. really stacks up to it. But even with it being my largest viewership country, it's it's still well under fifty percent. So yeah, it's it's insane. And that was that's another moment I remember when I was looking at the the stats for some of the earliest tennis videos I was doing. I was like, holy crap, this was viewed in a hundred and fifty countries. I didn't know there were a hundred and fifty countries existed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wild. But uh, another thing on basketball and tennis in college. Is it right that you were you were a commentator for men's basketball and tennis at Syracuse? Yeah, for separate entities. Uh, oh, okay. That, that's kind of the the typical thing you do. Uh, you know, when you go to Syracuse to to try to be a sports broadcaster, there are uh, a lot of different student organizations that there are to get involved in, and uh, kind of the famous one. It's been around forever. Marv Albert worked at this station. Mike Tirico worked at this station. Bob Costas, like pretty much anyone who went through Syracuse and that's WAER and uh, WAER is the radio station for men's basketball and football and men's lacrosse. And uh, so, so I did that on, on the radio uh, for tennis. That was something that launched really only three, four years before I got to Syracuse, which is uh, actually maybe only two, which is uh, ACC network extra. So, you know, th that's just the ACC partnering with ESPN and, you know, when, when ESPN launched ESPN plus 
they wanted, uh, you know, to incentivize people to subscribe and, uh, ACC network extra was something that I, I think you had to have an ESPN plus membership to access it. Uh, but Olympic sports at Syracuse, whether it be field hockey or, uh, volleyball, or in, in, in my case, tennis, that all went on ACC network extra. We were one of the only schools in the country at the time to, to broadcast tennis and, you know, it was multi-cam broadcasts. Uh, we were remote. We weren't like, you know, on the site, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, the technology that they had to invest in to make it so that the tennis facility, which was like a 10 minute drive away from the control room was wired up into the control room, uh, was pretty remarkable. So it, it was just one of those things where, you know, it, you kind of are thankful that you went to Syracuse and one of those opportunities that, you know, that you basically wouldn't have gotten if you went to any other school in the country. And that definitely helped me getting the tennis channel job because I was able to make a, a demo reel with live tennis commentary out of college and how many people actually have that out of college. Probably not a lot. Yeah. And, and I mean, speaking on tennis commentary, basketball versus tennis, I think is probably very different because in basketball's constant movement, it seems like it would almost be a little bit more of announcing just what's going on in the game versus tennis. You have to be able to come up with things to say on the spot. Did you notice that, it was a more of generation of ideas about the sport in tennis versus basketball, where it might be more play by play. Yeah. It's, it's totally, totally different. As you said, if I'm doing a basketball game and I'm doing play by play, I am calling action and it's about descriptions and verbs. And if it's the radio, then it's court geography and it's time and score and, you know, accentuating big moments as they happen. And, you know, tennis, you shut up while the point is, is being played. Uh, you should not speak while that is happening. And, uh, it's about, it's about finding, you know, how do I add to the viewer's experience by what you say, or sometimes what you don't say in between points. And if you have an analyst, normally, you know, a, a former pro, if you're at a place like tennis channel, always a former pro, if you're at a place like tennis channel, it's how do we get the most out of them? So yeah, it's a, it's a very, very different job. Yeah. So as a follow-up to that, did you have any tennis commentators that you would look up to and kind of try to replicate what they would do? You know, McEnroe comes to mind because I just love hearing him call games. Yeah. But like for me, for me, that would be a pretty bad guy to like try to replicate. Right. Because first of all, John McEnroe is an analyst and I will mm -hmm. never be an analyst because I, I was not uh, a pro. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would have to kind of look more towards like the play by players. Um, Ted Robinson is one uh, who, you know, real legend who just ha has a great feel for matches in terms of uh, how much to say, how much not to say, and, you know, a really friendly conversational tone to the way he calls matches as well. You know, I look at someone like Jason Goodall, and there's been opportunity to take certain things from, from him, but it's really about, like, grabbing bits and pieces, I think, and trying to find your own voice. You don't want to and everybody does this as a, as a young broadcaster. And I, I've certainly done this a lot. And I, I think especially when I do non-tennis sports, I'm still in this phase. But you, you try not to like do an impersonation of your favorite broadcasters mm -hmm. and try to become your own broadcaster. It's hard. It takes time. But you get there eventually, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Speaking on being on the tennis channel this year, I, I know you, uh, you were commentating on the U.S. Open radio. What was that experience like? I mean, obviously, it's like the biggest stage to be uh, commentating on. What was your experience like there? And, and 
was there a certain match that stood out that you you happened to call in the tournament yeah so to be clear that's not tennis channel related that's oh, that's okay. for the u.s open um it's unbelievable i mean it's my favorite and like no shade to all of the great weeks i have at tennis channel you know call matches in santa monica but that's my favorite 10 days out of the year you know just being on site at the tournament that i grew up with i grew up um in in westchester new york so i go into the u.s open that was kind of my experience with live tennis and uh my job's pretty cool uh basically the radio broadcast focuses on one match at a time mainly so the play-by-player and, and the analyst will really be focusing on that match for the vast majority of things. But as we know at a major tournament, there's so much going on on the other courts that uh, my job, at least one of them, is to keep people updated on what's happening on these other courts. So they'll go to me and I'll be over on grandstand and the main broadcast has been focused on Ash and, you know, my job might be to say, well, look, you know, Tiafo got the break here in the second set, and now I'm trying to add color and information, whether it be how it happened, why the match is important for Francis, uh, whether or not the draw has opened up in this part of the of of the draw, so it's a big opportunity. Whatever is kind of important or whatever can add color to the situation. And then the other thing I do, which is also, you know, something that I really cherish is the ability to interview players after the matches. So that's another thing that I get to do at US Open Radio, which is uh, really, really fun. And it's such a great team, you know, working with on air and off air with just a lot of great people. Um, and, it, you know, it starts to become this once a year thing where even though like you haven't seen a lot of these people in a year, uh, it, it feels like you saw them yesterday. You pick up right where you left off. And uh, I, I just I just love going to the US Open every year and working for uh, US Open Radio. That sounds sounds incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a critical part of the uh, the broadcast that you add there because if you just focus on the one match, people are going to be on their phone or something trying to find out about other matches. But you being able to add all this uh, cool color commentary from these uh, additional matches sounds like sounds like an excellent uh, thing to be uh, bringing to the broadcast. Yeah, I mean that's what a, ma- a major is about, right? Especially during the first week. Like the fun in a major is that. There's seven matches going on at once that you might be somewhat interested in to varying degrees. And we're just trying to capture the essence of that on radio, you know, just through audio. So, you know, that's, that's where me and my counterparts come in. Yeah. Especially in like the first couple of days, you're, you're at the grounds and you, you go, Oh, what matches are going on? Oh, on over on court 17, this match is going on and it's in fifth set or something like that. And you, you can run over there and watch the end of that one and then jump back and go over to another match and, Get, exactly. kind of get that experience like you're saying yep can you talk about the preparation that goes into the matches that you call because i feel like there's a lot of due diligence you need to do and then there's also a lot of in the moment kind of um on the fly stuff as well so just talk about the balance there yeah uh that's a great question so if i'm gonna do a match on on tennis channel generally i have an idea of when i'm gonna start my shift my my work shift and if it's at the start of play then i know exactly i i sometimes know exactly which match i'm gonna be on and i'm gonna be with that match for you know potentially two and a half hours of time sometimes more so that is where the night before i'm doing a lot of homework a lot of studying up and notes and all that uh so that i'm prepared to do something you know, that I'm prepared to call that match. And then I also need to know a little bit about other matches that we might pop in on in a, in a two box or something like that. But 
for U.S. Open Radio, there's basically no prep. Uh, it, it would be impossible. Uh, my prep is the knowledge that I obtain by covering the sport throughout the year. The reason there's no prep for U.S. Open Radio is because my on-air shift is, uh, you know, from 3 p.m. till the end of play every day. And, you know, I might see 15 matches on a given day every day. It's a, a, a 10-hour day. There's no time, like, there's just no time to prep and there's too much to prep. It would be impossible. So it's literally, you know, a lot of it is what I'm seeing and communicating what I'm seeing, using my background knowledge, staying on top of the main storylines for the tournament in general, certainly. And then if you need to know something, you know, I do have my phone in my pocket to, to find out whatever I need to find out, especially because I'm not on air constantly. They're going to me every, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, for these hits. So I do have that time in between to, uh, to gather information if need be. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Some good insight. Especially when you're on the radio, you could, you could be looking at your phone uh, while you're broadcasting. <laughs> That's true. That is true. But uh, yeah, I mean, thank you for uh, that great insight into your, your background and uh, your experience. So I kind of wanted to transition from there and talk about the 2023 season. And uh, as we look into 2024, like what your opinion is on a few things, because uh, I think it's great to, to hear other opinions. We don't want to be in a, uh, uh, a, an echo, a echo chamber. Yeah. An echo chamber. Exactly. Just me and Eric uh, reflecting our own opinions back at each other. So uh, was there any guy you felt had a season in 2023 that was, underrated for actually how well they performed probably dimitrov uh if you just look at how consistently he beat the players he was supposed to beat, how consistently he beat players outside of the top 10 grigor dimitrov was an absolute machine uh you can count the bad losses that he's had on his season on one hand and i i think when you look at it especially when you look at the draws he was dealt, there's a good argument to be made that if Dimitrov got a little bit of draw luck at maybe a couple of the majors or some of the Masters 1000s, he would have had a top 10 season. Statistically, even as it is, even with the bad draws that he tended to, to get throughout the year, he still had his best statistical year since 2018, which is not something that you'd expect out of someone of you know Dimitrov's age, uh, you know, north of 30 years old. So I think Grigor Dimitrov is the answer to kind of the under-the-radar player who really throughout the year was was performing noticeably well, noticeably better than he has the last few years. Yeah, and uh, I think that was also kind of reflected in the UTR came out with a ranking of their top 10 rated players for the season, and Dimitrov was like number eight on that list mm. because, like you said, he performed well against the guys that he lost to, and he beat all the guys he was expected to beat. So his his play level was up there. It just, yeah, sometimes that doesn't always convert to tournament results. Mm. Uh, moving on, another guy we talk about a lot, though, for the 2023 season, or we, we did talk about, was uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime. We've sometimes been a little harsh on him and his performance throughout this year. And I wanted to hear what your thoughts were about how he performed in 2023 and his struggles and what you kind of expect to see in the, the coming year. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple aspects to it. One, you know, he, he had this amazing 2022. Uh, the only thing that you would say about it 
is, you know, everything was kind of indoors. The majority of his success was indoors. Uh, now, I mean, there were some moments outside, right? Like Roland Garros, he pushes Nadal uh, on the clay. Um, so that that was one example. Um, and, and his results at majors, he was on a pretty good run there until the start of this year. But he's always been a player, one whose confidence can be a little bit fragile. Like when, when he starts missing, when things start going downhill and he starts to, you know, spiral and get negative, which doesn't always, it's not always very outward when he gets negative, but things can go downhill for him in a, in a big way, especially because he is such an aggressive player. His forehand is a really hot and cold shot. And, uh, you know, he can lose a lot of matches on his forehand just as much as he can win a lot of matches on his forehand. What happened this year, though, there was definitely, you know, some some injury stuff, although it's not like Shapovalov, who missed half the year. I mean, Felix only really missed three weeks uh, with, I think it was a shoulder injury. Statistically, what happened is, is his first serve. I mean, he didn't serve well this year. And I, I think that one thing people maybe don't see about Felix and how he's successful is, is just how important his first serve is to his game. He's not a guy who's like six foot six or six foot seven, um, and, and people look at him as a serve bot, and, and rightly so, he's not. But at the same time, that is his biggest weapon. That is his best weapon. And if he's going to serve low percentages like he did most of this year, and he's not going to hit as many, nearly as many aces at the frequency that he did in 2022, he's never been a great baseliner. He's never been a top 10 level baseliner ever. So he needs his first serve to make things easy on him, to bail him out of tough situations. And, you know, just assessing his tennis, like a lot of people look at his weaknesses uh, or, or they hone in on like his backhand. But at the end of the day, I think his strength is what failed him this year, mainly his first serve and at times even his forehand. Yeah, I mean, that's that's some great insight. I also think that with the serve, as you said, his confidence probably was wavering a little bit. And I think the serve, obviously, it's not it, it's a set play shot. It's not like a in the middle of a rally where you can maybe kind of get into a flow with it. The serve, you're all in your head before you hit it. So if your confidence is wavering in your serve, that can probably have an impact on how well you hit it and what the percentage looks like for that shot. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we were kind of talking about that earlier too, Aiden. Having the confidence to be able to serve you your way out of predicaments too. If you you find yourself down in a game and you have a big serve and you're confident, you know, you're like, oh, I'll just serve my way out, you know? And he just didn't have that anymore. Yeah, his first serve in percentage for the year was four percentage points lower and his ace rate was about three percentage points lower which uh they might sound like small numbers but when we're talking about thousands of serves that's actually a really big number it's statistically significant number because you know you got to think of it as a range of i mean the worst servers might have an ace rate of two percent the best servers might have an ace rate of 18 percent so you think about like what 3% does at this level of the game, it's a massive deal. Uh, that said, like if you look at his return game, like the rate at which he broke serve, that was also down big time this year. So a lot of the times, you know, I was watching Felix's matches and, you know, people, people wanted to ask me like, what's going wrong? What's the issue with Felix? Why isn't he winning? And sometimes the answer was like, you know, everything like he's nothing is going well, right? It's not one thing. 
it was a surprisingly bad year, uh, even if I didn't necessarily buy into uh, the hype that was building coming into the year based on his indoor hard court results after the U.S. Open, because you always got to be careful with those. Uh, a lot of players will tear it up after the U.S. Open indoors, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have this massive season next year. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that he was able to come in this year still and win in, in Basel shows that it, there's a confidence aspect to it because he had no momentum going into that tournament, really. And then all of a sudden he's able to win a big event that nobody really expected him to. So pretty crazy that it can turn around like that, because I feel like you don't really think of indoors as being that massively different from outdoors just on the surface because it's still a hard court. But in terms of the mentality and how it feels maybe on the court, it can be a big difference. It's a big deal for someone like Felix though, because you know he's all about aggressive spot serving and pretty low margin forehand. And again, his intentions and his targets on the forehand are, are very, very small. I mean, he, he goes for lines all the time and sometimes that's to his detriment, but indoors, he's gonna land more of those shots. It's just easier to time the ball. You don't have the wind. You don't have those elements that are gonna throw off your timing by that fraction of a second. That's gonna be the difference uh, for you know making your attacking forehand and missing it. 100%. Uh, shifting to uh, two guys that had great 2023s, Sinner and Alcaraz, and as they move into 2024, obviously Alcaraz was, a step up on center at the beginning of the year, he returned from injury and just that first half of the season or through Wimbledon really was crazy. I mean, I think in my opinion, he was probably the player of the year through Wimbledon. Yeah. Djokovic kind of took that title for me as the season ended up winning the U S open Cincinnati, all these tournaments at the end of the year. But in that time that Djokovic kind of took player of the year center also, it seemed like took a step up. He won multiple tournaments and beat Medvedev multiple times. So I wanted to hear your idea on who do you think of those two kind of has a better 2024 and ends up higher ranked at the end of that this season? Yeah, I mean, so the trendy answer would be Sinner right now because of everything you just said. I mean, Alcaraz didn't win a title after Wimbledon and Sinner. My favorite Sinner stat right now is he's won seven out of his last eight matches against top five players. That's how good he was, you know, in the latter stretch of the year. But, uh, you know, Yannick had more to improve on than Alcaraz. He was behind. And you got to give him so much credit for the work he did physically. His explosiveness is better. His durability is better. He's not getting those small injuries as much as he was last year. He's not looking as, as worse for wear late in tournaments like he was last year. Uh, the volleys are a lot better. Like he, he volleyed his way to a win, to his first win over Daniil Medvedev. I think that was in Beijing. He's added a forehand drop shot against Djokovic. I think it's been key that he's kind of learned to move his backhand around a lot more where it used to be just kind of heavy cross court, very predictable. So he's done a lot of things and I think he's closed that gap a little bit to Alcaraz, but I still think to say that Sinner's going to have a better 2024 is probably an overreaction, a little bit of recency bias in my opinion, uh, just because I mean, Alcaraz, you think about who do you trust at the end of a major right now? The guy who has already closed the deal twice in Alcaraz, two major titles already. You know you know that when he's in a third major final and look, he's, he's 2-0 in those things, you know that it's not really going to phase him and that he's going to show up and probably be the best version of himself uh, versus Sinner. 
who doesn't have really a lot of big wins at slams, period. Yeah. Uh, you know, he made his first semifinal at Wimbledon. The draw was a dream draw for him. Uh, wasn't able to really challenge Djokovic very well in that semifinal. That's his only major semifinal. So, like, I'm coming into 2024 thinking, I think Yannick is ready to, for the first time, have some some big moments at majors, get himself in some big matches, maybe make a major final. But now there's that concern, guy with a history of some nerve management issues, how is he going to handle his first major final? I don't have that concern with Alcaraz. So I, I still think, you know, Carlitos, um, especially if, if he's able to correct some things that we saw um, in the second half of, of last year, still think Alcaraz has the better year in 2024. Yeah, Alcaraz this year made the semifinal of every slam he played in, minimum. And you look at those matches, he was not that far off when he played against uh, Medvedev in the U.S. Open. I think like that match, if he had gotten a few chances and performed a little bit better in a couple of situations, that match could have gone his way. And then you look at uh, the semifinal, the French Open, and he was struggling with some injury and some some health issues, it seemed. So it seems like these matches were he was right there. Whereas, like you said, yes, yeah, Sinner lost to Zverev in the U.S. Open, who is a guy that, while he had a great year, isn't necessarily a top four guy. Yeah, I, and that was, you know, that, that was a kind of a tough matchup for Sinner um, in, in Zverev before I think he unlocked what he did after the U.S. Open, which was, I trust my volleys. I can come forward. I know when to take some more pace off the ball, you know, focus on angles, um, and, and use the drop shot. Like these are all very important things against Zverev because Zverev is a great uh, pace absorber. And those are the guys that Sinner has really struggled against. So Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev, before this last couple months of the year, he's been terrible against all those guys for a reason because Sinner is kind of his whole thing was I'm going to hit the ball so hard that you're not going to really be able to handle it. My, I'm going to give you too much pace to handle. And for those guys, it's like, nope, I can handle the pace. And then Sinner has no answer. He's just had to develop more well-rounded point construction and offense, uh, which, which he has. So now he should be able to compete against those guys better. But yeah, I mean, Alcaraz still uh, ahead by a little bit um, for Yannick. Although Sinner does match up really well against Alcaraz head-to-head. -head. So that works in his favor. Yeah. Kind of Sinner has a little bit more to prove, essentially, compared to Alcaraz, who already has proved himself to an extent. But uh, outside of those two guys, is there a player you think of in 2024 that is like a guy to watch that you think is going to break out and make a big mark that maybe is under the radar right now? Kind of like how Dimitrov was under the radar this year. Is there a guy that is maybe under the radar now, but you think in 2024 is going to explode onto the scene? I don't know if there's anyone under the radar, so to speak, but I, I think some the most interesting prospects or the most interesting guys where you kind of ask the question, uh, are they going to make a leap would be Ben Shelton and, and Holger Runa. And among those guys, I'm, I'm pretty confident in Runa. I, I think, I think there's too much low hanging fruit for improvement for Holger. Uh, I believe in his desire, his work ethic, and I, I really believe in his team. Um, he has Severn Luthen now on. He has Boris Becker on. So I, I just I can't see things not working out this year for Runa, and I think he's going to start to start to fulfill his potential more. Uh, because even though I mean he, he had a good year, right? He finished eight in the world this year. I, I I watch him play, 
and it, especially the inconsistencies that we saw after the clay court season. And uh, I think, wow, he could be so much better. Uh, his his decision-making is not polished. Physically, he seems to have a, a real stamina issue, uh, which is partially why he has shot selection issues. Uh, he had, it seemed like he had drama with his coaching this year, and it seemed like he had injuries. So all of these things go wrong, and you're still eight in the world. What's going to happen when some of these things inevitably correct themselves? I mean, I think he'll finish top five, to be to be frank. Yeah. Looking at someone like uh, Rublev, Rublev is a guy that is top five right now, but I think Runa's potential, based on what I've seen from Rublev, it seems like Runa's potential is much higher to become a significantly maybe better player. Whereas Rublev, I've called him in the past sort of a gatekeeper to the top five because he's really tough to beat for a lot of these guys. But if you can beat him, it seems like you can beat him. He's not a guy that really makes that many of these massive upset wins against guys that are better than him. Yes, I, I think that's I think that's completely accurate. Uh, it's funny, they played at the Australian Open. And it was one of the best matches of the year, honestly. And it was exactly that. Uh, Runa, at times, I, I think Runa was kind of the better player and the more talented player. But uh, emotionally and tactically, he was a total mess. So he lost in, in a fifth set. And Rublev was the professional on the court. And the guy who had the composure, which sometimes you don't say about Rublev. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Holger Holger wasn't. So, yeah, I, again, it's, it's just a maturing process for Runa. He's a better athlete than Rublev. He defends way better uh, than Rublev. His backhand is is quite a bit better, I think, than than Rublev's as well. He volleys better than Rublev. So, um, yeah, eventually, eventually that leapfrog will happen. Yeah. Well, you saw that in Monte Carlo too, when you know Runa just completely imploded, and Rublev ended up taking the title. True. Yep. Good point. Speaking on a, a couple more guys in, in 2024 that may be winding down their careers, what do you think the 2024 season looks like for Djokovic and Nadal, who obviously is coming back in Brisbane? But these guys are obviously, there's inevitability that time is going to uh, catch up with them at some point. But what do you think the season looks for, for both of them? And uh, how many more years do you think Djokovic is going to end up playing? I don't know how many more years, but I'm I'm pretty confident that Djokovic in uh, 2024 gonna gonna be very very motivated um the body is is still in in a really good place it seems uh physically athletically um and I, I love what he's done with his forehand making that a, a much bigger weapon um a lot higher ground stroke speeds from from Djokovic particularly on the forehand side that's going to help him a lot um I, I think he wants those those Olympics real bad and even if he doesn't win the Olympic gold medal I think it's going to fuel the rest of his season, especially the first half of his season. So it's going to treat him well. So, I, I mean, I, I think Novak's going to continue to be the Novak that we saw uh, last year. It's really going to be up to, uh, to Alcaraz and Sinner and, and Medvedev on hard courts, especially to see what they can do to challenge it. But I don't think we're going to see a drop off for Djokovic. For Nadal, uh, the question is, what's his movement going to be like? Is he going to be able to stay healthy? And, and that's really the one that we're all, you know, fingers crossed for uh, because that's the whole kind of the whole point of Nadal coming back to play is he wants to, to finish his career on the tennis court, not in a press conference. That's what he said. So first of all, you hope that for him, 
how good can he be if his movement's like 70% of, of what maybe it was? I, I don't know that I want to say in his prime because, you know, that that's even – he's won plenty of majors without his movement being of the level that it was in his prime. Um, but let's just say 2019 level, you know, first half of 2022 level. If it's a lot lower than that, I still think Nadal can be a borderline top 10 player. Like the guy's just really, really skilled. He doesn't have the big serve that I think he would need to like really compete on the upper echelons of the game if he's not moving well. But just if you look at what his forehand brings to the table and the the baseline variety and the the court craft and the the ra- overall racket skills that he has as a baseliner, he can still be a borderline top 10 player without having to move all that well. So that's kind of my mindset going into Nadal's year. I, I don't think he can compete. I'm not anticipating that he can contend for majors because I don't think the movement is going to be good enough to do that. I also think that even if his movement isn't good, he's still going to win a whole lot of matches. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think about someone like Nadal and be, and be able to say that he can play at that top 10 level considering his movement is maybe one of his, his his best things. He's an incredible mover when he was younger. And without that, you'd be like, okay, well, where is he, where is he going to be? But yeah, exactly like you were saying, if you look at the rest of his game, you're still like, okay, this guy's an incredible player. Right, like compare him to Murray. Murray doesn't have any weapon in the same stratosphere as Nadal's forehand. And that's why when Murray's movement goes, it's like, okay, what are you as a player and how are you going to win? Nadal doesn't have that issue. Um, he has those aggressive tools to, uh, to kind of overcome any kind of slight decline in movement. Yeah, and even Murray, w- without that movement, he's still able to be a, a top 50, top 40 guy even. Yeah. So you, you'd have to think that, that Nadal is able to uh, compete at an even higher level. But uh, yeah, I know. I mean, speaking on those two guys, though, I, I know that you have your, your podcast three which is focused on the big three. These guys are obviously winding down those careers. Do you know uh, what where that podcast is going to sort of trend considering uh, their careers are winding down? We have some ideas. We're not ready to share them yet, uh, oh, okay. but we're going to continue to to do the podcast. Uh, th- that's the plan. Um, right now, we, we do have Djokovic. We do have Nadal in, in potentially his last year or so. Uh, we're content right now, you know, continuing to be a big three podcast, but yeah. uh, you're right. That won't last forever, um, but we're, we're committed to keeping it going. Yeah. But, but speaking on the post big three era though, I do have a question about what your thoughts are and what the, the leading guys are going to look like after that era is done. And I was wondering if you think it's going to return to a system where it's sort of like a more balanced distribution of slam winners where nobody's really favored to win every single slam of the year, or it's going to sort of have another, not necessarily big three, but maybe a big four, just a a small group of guys that are winning everything. Small group, small group. I think uh, a lot of people have been uh, in, in some sort of fantasy world about this, where they think like you're going to be world number nine and you're going to have a great chance to win when like Carlos Alcaraz exists, you know, (laughs) Like, I, I, I don't see why people don't. These top guys had a pretty dominant year, and that includes Medvedev, and that includes Sinner, and obviously it includes Alcaraz, outside of Djokovic. They were really, really good. They are really, really good. Medvedev is actually low-key getting up there in age, but Sinner is young, improving. Runa has the talent to, to be one of those guys, 
how is Shelton going to develop? And what about some of the guys who uh, are 17 years old right now? And, you know, in, in two years, they're going to they're gonna be the brightest prospects in the sport. Like, there's just no evidence that there's going to be some sort of void of top-tier dominant talent in the men's game when when Djokovic steps aside. Zero. So, yeah, I've been I've rejected that theory for for years now, um, and I'm I'm not sure why people are so convinced that it's going to be open season slams for everybody when Djokovic leaves. Yeah, and I think uh, honestly, I don't think there's ever really been a, a a time when it was that wide open. Like I feel like there's always been top guys that you are are expected to really perform the best. Yeah, I mean, it used to depend on surface more. So in the 90s, like there were a bunch of guys who you just knew weren't going to win in Roland Garros. And that included some of the best in the world. Like you just knew Boris Becker wasn't going to win it. Sampras wasn't going to win it. It was going to be somebody else. Um, and then at Wimbledon, it was like, okay, they are going to win it. So that that's how things have changed, right? The game has changed. And now it's even, it feels like even less guys can win majors because mm. everyone's playing the same on every surface. Uh, so if, if you're the best on clay, you're probably one of the best on grass and you're definitely one of the best on hard court. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got kind of a fun question for you. So first, can you kind of speak about the state of American tennis and then which American player you think has the best chance to win a slam? Yeah. I mean, there's just, there are just so many, so many guys right now, uh, so many variables in the top 30. It's amazing. Um, and to me, that means the the developmental side, they've done their job. You know, I think there was a, a down period where people were looking at American tennis and, uh, you know, USTA, rightly so, kind of questioning, are, are, we, are we emphasizing the right things in coaching and development? And the answer was probably no. I think this generation, you have to say yes, but you can't teach the kind of talent it takes to actually dominate and, and win majors. And uh, I, I, think, I think Shelton has it for sure. I think Corda has it maybe, but I'm much less convinced. And I don't think anyone else has it. So a lot of people are, are very hopeful, you know, maybe very excited about Francis Tiafo and Tommy Paul and Taylor Fritz. Look, I think they've done an amazing job, but I don't think they're ever going to be top five. And that's because I literally don't know what they're supposed to do better than they've done. Like Taylor, Taylor has a great forehand and a great backhand. Um, you can't really hit the ball much better than Taylor. But his touch is is really poor and his movement isn't that good. It's like, is Taylor Fritz ever going to move as well as even like Sinner? No. Can he do anything about that? I don't think so. He just, he's just not born with it. Uh, Tommy Paul has the opposite problem. He does move as well as Sinner and Alcaraz and Medvedev, but he doesn't have the racket talent that Fritz has. He doesn't, his forehand isn't as good and his backhand isn't as good and his serve isn't as good. Uh, and I don't think he can do anything about it. Uh, Francis is kind of in between, you know, he's got some funky technique and an interesting play style. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are limitations on what he can do on the forehand and the backhand. So I, I think those guys have kind of maxed out and that doesn't mean that they can't have a year where maybe they finish, you know, they make the year end championship one year. I think that should be Tommy Paul's goal. I think that should be Francis's goal. Um, Fritz has already done it. I think, you know, Taylor should, should want to have, you know, more runs at, at majors. I think that should be his goal. But Corda is a pretty special ball striker. And I think if he can continue to develop uh, his serve, which he started to do this year, I think he can definitely be a top 10 player. With Shelton, you look at a guy who might have at, at some point the best serve in the world, a dominant serve. 
and you combine that with the fact that his forehand is a weapon, unlike a lot of these other big servers that we see now, Herkoc, Medvedev, Zverev, their forehands are not weapons. So Shelton can actually deliver a serve plus one at the level of like a Berrettini, but he's much more athletic than Berrettini, moves much better. That's enticing because that, that allows him to then also be a, a pretty good baseliner as well. So I think Shelton is the guy, if all the cards fall correctly in his development, and by the way, I, I really like his makeup mentally as well. I think Shelton is, is the best chance that I see right now. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I feel like Corda kind of flies under the radar or at least slips through the cracks because he's not as high ranked as these other guys too. So he can't stay healthy. Fact... Yeah. He just can't stay healthy. So th that's been the problem for him mm -hmm. for three years now. And he's trying his best. He's trying to build up his body. He's trying to build muscle. And, you know, now we're going to start to see, okay, you're at the age where you should be pretty much fully developed and you've had the years to put in the work to try to uh, build up your body. Is, is this an issue where, like, genetically you're just a little bit brittle? Or have you gotten to the place now where you're going to be able to stay healthy? Yeah. I, I mean, speaking on Corda, we had a pro player come on, Alafi Ayani. He's been playing in a lot of challengers and futures tournaments. But he played against Corda when he was a junior. And one thing he talked about was, like, sometimes Corda just has those moments where he just won't miss shots and he's just – spectacular on the court and there's nothing that it seems like his opponent can do about it. And so if Corda can put that together where he doesn't have any issues where that falls off, he could probably be uh, performing at that level, but it seems like he hasn't been able to uh, consistently perform at that level. Yeah. I mean, look at what he did in January. He, he almost beat Djokovic to win Adelaide and, uh, and he beat Medvedev at the Australian open what ended that Australian Open run? It's not. It wasn't him losing a match. It was him injuring his wrist. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you uh, for coming on. Uh, we're going to hop into segments now. So, uh, Eric, uh, what's new in tennis? What do you see this week? Yeah, so Gil actually mentioned it a little earlier, but uh, Runa adds Severin Luthen to his team. You know, he's a former coach of Roger Federer. Um, so he's going to work alongside Boris Becker. I'm not really sure how they'll balance it, but... Um, I feel like Team Runa is becoming a powerhouse and credit to his mom because his mom's his manager as well. And they've they haven't really had the best, I guess, you know, um, <clears throat> relationship dynamic. Like remember in Roland Garros, he kicked his mom out of the out of the match. So I feel like she's really putting in effort to try to build up this team. And um, it makes sense after the season he's had that they're really trying to put more effort into that. So a little background on um, uh, Luthi. He's Federer's coach from 2007 to 2022. And I like this piece of news because I think it's interesting how each player has their own box dynamic. You know, you have Alcaraz, who they he has a squad of just fully, like, committed guys. And then you have some people like Medvedev, who's just, you know, kind of a lone wolf type of vibe where he has one person in his box, and it's usually his coach, sometimes his wife. Then you have like Tommy Paul and Nick Kyrgios who bring a lot of friends in their box, their girlfriends. So it's kind of interesting to see, you know, how you can make up a team and what that comprises of like trainers, friends, coaches, yeah. girlfriends. Rune is putting together a super team here. Yeah, super team. <laughs> the I first know. tennis super team. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I saw was uh, this thing about Djokovic. He missed out on a bunch of bonus money because he failed to participate in enough Masters 1000 events this year. 
And a big part of that was that they didn't allow him to play in the sunshine double, obviously because of uh, COVID restrictions. And he, he maybe could have forced himself to play in Canada or gone all the way to Asia playing Shanghai, but he didn't end up doing that. And he missed out on probably around $5 million in bonus money because uh, the top guy in terms of bonus money was Alcaraz and he made four, 4.4 million. And, uh, you would kind of assume that Djokovic would be at least in that range. So it's crazy because he was still the top earner for the ATP. But even then, I know he doesn't necessarily need that money, but it's still a ton of money to not get for a situation that wasn't, it was borderline out of his control, depending on how you view that whole situation. But it seems like a little bit of a, uh, uh, definitely an unfortunate situation for him. Yeah, I don't like that. I, I think just principle-wise, the ATP kind of did them dirty. The ATP, I think it's out of their hands, right? Like when you make a policy, that's the policy. And it's it's really the U.S. government regulations that I, I think you have. At, at that point, I think everybody, like left, right, center, everybody agreed it was outdated and just needed to get updated, which it did like the next month. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's, I don't know that the ATP could have done anything. How much did you say it was? Three million? Alcaraz made 4.4 million. So I'm assuming that Djokovic would be around there and uh, would have been close to maybe like 5 million in bonus money. He made 15 million in the year. So prize it would have been money. maybe, uh, yeah, in, in prize money, for, I think from the ATP. And uh, the bonus would have been, I guess, like, what is that, 20% of it? True. Um, probably made double that, maybe around, maybe close to 30 million. And I'm guessing, I haven't looked at the number in a while, in endorsements. Mm. so that's a bigger part like players he definitely doesn't want to lose four million for no reason but uh if you look at kind of what he makes for the year and try to calculate well how how meaningful is that to him i think you throw in the you throw in the endorsement money and it it's a lot more uh palatable stomachable yeah mm-hmm. that's true that's, that's true, true. It, it it's just one of those things where it's like you look at it and even though it's not necessarily the biggest percentage of his income. It's still like, okay, that's five million or four million dollars that he's not getting. Yeah, at least it was able to be spread spread around with other players too. Yeah, exactly. Someone else was was in the top thirty because he mm-hmm. wasn't in it. So someone was happy. Yeah, we we would get into bet of the week now, obviously, but uh, no real bets this week. Maybe next week though, because the United Cup was coming up. So. Uh, Maybe we'll get into a bet then, but none for this week. So that means match of the week. Last week I talked about maybe we would do something different because there weren't any ATV matches that last week. So this week we're going to be talking about uh, some of our favorite historical matches. So uh, Eric, do you want to get into yours first? Yeah, definitely. I'll do it. Um, so I'm choosing the Nadal Feder 2009 uh, Australian Open final, just kind of as a little paying homage to Nadal coming back, hopefully going to have a, a great year. And um, let's see. So I'm going to get pretty, pretty detailed with this. Um, I was watching the highlights this morning. It was just incredible. So, so a little background information. This was Nadal's first hardcore final while it was Federer's ninth and he hadn't lost one yet. Um, and then you had the stare down in the beginning, you know, they're face to face across the net there's this great camera angle where it zoomed in, like slow motion shot of Nadal just jumping up and down. You know how he does. I think it's like an intimidation factor, but uh, long hair just kind of gracefully flopping everywhere. And then 
Federer just sat there so composed, smirking, looking nice and calm as he as he tends to do. Um, so the first set, Federer actually had a break point. Um, you know, he actually teed up on a Nadal serve, made it 4-2. And you kind of thought from that point on, all right, Federer's got the first set. But Nadal immediately broke back and ended up breaking again at 5-5, went on to take the first set 7-5. Uh, you know, we had amazing long rallies, Federer's inside out forehand that tends to go up the line too that kind of curves back in love seeing that um so the second set Federer was not messing around there you know he took it 6-3 pretty easily and then in the third there was this insane rally where Nadal had two overheads that should have been put away but then somehow Federer got them back brought the point back to neutral and even had a chance to win the point but unfortunately put it into the net and Nadal ended up winning the third set in a tiebreaker off a of Federer double fault. So kind of heartbreaking. Uh, Federer came back, won the fourth set, but then the fifth was completely controlled by Nadal, cruised through, won the fifth, took it 6-2, uh, and won his first Australian Open final. That's uh, that's quite the match there. I wonder what the storyline was like in going into this match because obviously I wasn't really uh, that locked in on it when I was uh, – <laughs> eight years old in 2009 but uh, when you when you look at that match obviously 2008 Wimbledon is considered one of like the best matches of all time and then Federer wins the U.S. Open that year and then you go into this match and I wonder if there was a thought like after Nadal wins this hard court final is he going to sort of take over and be that guy that's like oh this guy is the the new king and he's going to win everything now because obviously Federer had been that guy and now he's lost in two straight finals to, uh, to Nadal both times he played him. So I wonder what the situation was like there in that, uh, that after that match. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what about you? What is your match? Uh, my match is uh, my favorite match of all time is uh, the Federer versus Nadal. Another Australian open final between them 2017 Gil, uh, and you brought this one up earlier, but I just remember the storyline in that match because both were coming back from injuries, so they'd been off for a while, and they came in as the 17th seed for Federer and the 9th seed for Nadal. And so you're looking at this match and you're like, okay, how are these guys going to do coming back from an injury? You had Djokovic go out in round two to Dennis Istomin, obviously a massive upset. Uh, Murray lost, I want to say in the, the quarterfinals or something like that. And so these guys are all of a sudden the last of the big four that, that are left and they make the final. And it was just weird seeing that 17 and nine, instead of like a one and a, a three on the seeds there. But Federer obviously hadn't won a slam since 2012 Wimbledon and Nadal's last one was the 2014 French. So to an extent, it seemed like they were past their prime maybe weren't going to play in a final after 2015 and 16 they hadn't won one and now it was going to be a massive comeback for either player probably bigger for Federer but still big big for either guy and it was just a, a really tight match back and forth a ton of momentum swings and they got got to a fifth set and uh, Nadal went up a break early in the fifth and then Federer battled back and ended up taking the match I just remember this match because uh, Pacific time, it started at 1230 uh, in the morning. So like just past midnight 
And I stayed up till 4 a.m. watching it. And it was so intense. And I was just like sweating, just like I was rooting for Federer. So obviously for me, it was a great result. Not the great result for uh, Nadal fans, but it was just an exciting match to, uh, to, to watch. Yeah, I like how you brought up the 17 versus nine seeds because in the match in 2009 that I was talk- just talked about, it was one and two. So like pretty funny. Yeah, crazy how eight years later, guys are still playing in the same uh, Grand Slam final. Anyway, that was uh, an incredible episode. Thank you for coming on, Gil. Uh, we'd love to have you back in the future if you're ever interested. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, Gil, uh, thanks. And why don't you tell people where they can find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on the uh, Gil Gross YouTube channel at Gil underscore Gross on Twitter slash X. Instagram is in the future. We're, we're going to launch that uh, pretty soon. We've been ignoring that for a while. Uh, also on TikTok, Gil Gross Analysis um, newsletter coming soon as well. So exciting stuff on the horizon. Thank you guys for having me. This was uh, this was really fun. Aiden and Eric, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, and that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.